Welcome to the Cattle First podcast from Beringer Ingelheim. I'm your host, Bill Spiegel, and we are here today with Dr. Chris Chase, a veterinary immunologist at South Dakota State University in Brookings, South Dakota. Glad to be here. In this podcast, we'll talk about ways to protect your herd from BVD. So Dr. Chase, we've talked a lot about BVD in past conversations here. Ultimately, tell us how to protect our herds from BVD. Well, the there's really uh, uh, three things that we need to think about. So the the first is certainly uh, uh, that we have an idea by monitoring what the status of the herd is. Uh, and then the, the second thing is uh, having a good biosecurity program. Uh, and then the third is, is certainly vaccination. And, and uh, what happens more times than not is people uh, are used to vaccinating. So that's sort of the main thing that they hang their hat on when, in fact, uh, this virus, uh, just by its very nature, requires really this, really this threefold approach in terms of being able to control it. So uh, when, when we va- use vaccination, then, as you said, most producers are, are, are well aware of, of their need to vaccinate. Is, is that vaccination done at the same time as all other vaccinations? Well, well, typically, you know, we I would say that uh, you know the vast majority of BVD vaccines that are used in the uh, in the U.S. are actually a combination. So they're typically going to be, uh, you know, with uh, other repro- for example, for using it in cows uh, with other reproductive disease like leptospirosis and uh, infectious bovine rhinotracheitis. That would be a, a usual combination. And then in the young stock, often the same way. In this case, they'll typically just worrying about uh, the virals like um, IBR. Uh, uh, BRC. It's pretty hard actually to find uh, vaccines that are not combo vaccines that that contain BVD as well. Particularly when we talk about viral vaccines. So yeah, it's. I mean, it's typically uh, it's it's administered uh, again in a combination vaccine. And uh, you know, the, the one thing about it uh, that that we need to to be aware of is that. Again, in in stressed animals, when we're when we're vaccinating, we, uh, because the, especially with the live vaccine, uh, it too can have some uh, some suppressive effects because it's mimicking what the virus does in the real animal, which is why the the modified live vaccines have an advantage from that standpoint because it kind of mimics the disease to the animal, which also means it mimics it in terms of how the immune response is. But uh, I think you know, that's one thing that we need to to be aware of is when we're given BVD vaccines, uh, is trying to avoid uh, those times when uh, the animals are under uh, a fair amount of stress. So most dairy operators are, are pretty familiar with their herds, right? They they know their cows uh, very well. So uh, let's say with our herd, we have our testing strategy, our, our protocol, and, and things like that. Uh, what are some of the the tips you might have for uh, testing your herd, knowing your herd status, making sure that we are on top of of this disease? One of the things we, uh, we, we've talked about is, is the bulk milk testing. So that's one way to actually look at sort of a string of cows. Uh, and, and typically when we do that, and, get, and with, even with large dairies, you can do this. when uh, So when, when cows are milked in, in what we call a string, so say three 350 cows, you can actually collect the milk from that group of animals and then, and then actually do a very sensitive testing on that to look to see whether or not animals within that group would be positive or not. And you, you kind of do that and work your way through the herd. Then you find the groups of animals. Now, again, this is in big herds. In smaller herds, you know, typically what might be done is actually go in and, and uh, do a blood test uh, rather than an ear notch. Uh, and, uh, and you can 
pull that there's the, the white blood cells are called buffy coat and you can you can pull that so in, you know so in maybe in a smaller herd we would do that but in a bigger herd typically we would start with the bulk milk testing and then use that to identify the groups uh, into into what groups that we that we could actually uh, pick the virus up in we know the unfortunate thing with the bulk milk test is that the the virus so we you know we've talked about how bvd is excreted from secretions fairly all the time milk seems to be the one thing where it may not be every day so you can't use it the milk from an individual animal to actually detect the pi but it will tell us about whether that group is infected and then we can go in and, and then individually test uh, that group okay so again and typically what you do is break that into smaller groups so again we would pull blood from those animals, uh, do buffy coats, say maybe for 25 to 50 animals and just kind of break it down. So you start out with a bulk milk sample, let's say be 350 cows, if that's positive, then you break it down into, into smaller groups until you can actually get it down to your down to the individual animal. So bulk milk down to smaller samples on big herds, uh, smaller herds probably individual blood tests to, to, to identify those animals. And again, once we have an animal that's positive, then we want to make sure that we eliminate it. And if we don't have animals that are positive, um, we also don't want to forget about the rest of the young stock. So we're looking at the replacement heifers. We want to test everything. In that case, obviously, we're not going to use milk. Then we're going to want to go in. If they haven't been notched, make sure that we've gone through uh, and done an ear notch on the young stock. Uh, if they have, if they've uh, uh, been previously tested, then my, what I might do is just uh, measure antibody in them just to see if the virus is actively circulating. Because what we do know is that if the virus is circulating in that herd, that when we look, look at the antibody titer in the herd, that it's going to be higher. Because again, when they get exposed to it, their immune system sees it, and that just increases their antibody titer. So that's another thing that we can that we can use to kind of tell us how active the infection is in that herd. Uh, and it, but it does, it, from a strategy standpoint, Standpoint, it, it, it sometimes it can take um, months to to a year or two to to work our way through that herd, and again, that's why the calf continues to be an important animal to to look at. And the other thing to think about again is if if I've gone through, I know I have a herd that's had an, an issue uh, that I want to make sure that again all the stillborns or all the animals that are uh, that that were lost. Uh, that I'm sampling those because they, that could be from BVD and I, I missed that cow altogether because I didn't sample her calf because it wasn't a live calf. So those, the herd ends up being really, a, 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 you know, something that, boy, you really got to spend some time with your veterinarian. Uh, and I can tell you, you know, I, I, I probably spend more time uh, talking to, to veterinarians about how to devise the right strategy for herd testing uh, than anything else just because it's complicated. So what is the right time to, uh, uh, to give a vaccine if, if that's the case? Number one, I want to make sure that I don't, the calves are not PI. Then secondly, when I'm going to look at my BVD, and I typically don't like to give BVD to, to animals, and again, it kind of depends on what's going on in the herd until they're at least a couple months old and, and maybe preferably three months old. And then what I want to do is I want to get a modified live vaccine into them uh, two or maybe three times before I'm going to breed them. Because what, what I want to do is I want to make sure that that, that that calf responded to that vaccine. I'm not giving them to them two or three times because I'm really interested in boostering. I'm just trying to make sure that I that, that vaccine at least took once in those animals. So that's the first thing. I want to set them up. And I, and I really don't believe that, you know, if you have heifers that you don't know what the history is, uh, and then you're going to try to do what I call catch-up, I don't think you can ever really play catch-up because the best time, because once that animal's bred, once she's in the herd, and if her vaccine status wasn't established early, I think it's really pretty hard to get her up to where I want her. So, so I want to make sure that that calf food vaccine 
vaccination for BVD is done, and that, and then I've got one one dose of that to, to really take well. Uh, then what I want to do after that is uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get her bread, and then then I, I'm at that point. Then I'm going to need to make a decision uh, within the herd if I'm going to vaccinate her um, prior to. So she's bred. Do I vaccinate her prior to uh, calving or after calving? And, and, and you know a lot of people do it after calving, and typically uh, in that case I want to be somewhere out. Uh, let's say at least 45 days out from calving because the other thing that we know about especially in the dairy animal is that lactation really trumps immunity so when they're early in lactation um, they're putting all that energy into that bucket uh, and producing milk the vaccine responses at those at those times are, are actually you know are pretty minimal you'll get some but not not, not all that great so you know I want to if I'm going to give it to the the animal uh, when she's lactating I want to get to it a little bit later uh, you know, I personally like uh, vaccinating uh, the dry cow, but in that case, I just want to use uh, an inactivated vaccine, uh, and and that's because I'm I'm concerned. Uh, even though we've uh, vaccines, a number of these vaccines are labeled to use in pregnant animals uh, that are live. Uh, I just think that the uh, the reality is is that uh, regardless of how good the vaccine is, uh, there's a disclaimer now that says very clearly that uh, regardless of you know the studies that have been done, that that individual variation occurs and that animals may indeed. Um, have some issues and, and make sure again that you consult with the veterinarian so to me that's that's something that uh, you know we need to again talk to your veterinarian very carefully about in terms of that strategy and that uh, that cow if I'm going to vaccinate her uh, in the dry cow period and then also in the fresh period uh, and and the, and the reason that we that we you know that you know that we tend to lean towards the fresh cow period is that we know when it comes to preventing PIs that you know obviously if we can get it done prior to breeding the closer we can get it done prior to breeding probably the better our immunity will be and the better that uh, you know protect that calf but but there's been some work now that's certainly been done uh, in the dry cow and, and with inactivated vaccines that show that in fact that you can get some nice carryover but I will admit that those have been done in beef cows but I, I, I do think that that's a uh, something that we need to look at and there's even some herds where they actually will give them uh, a, a vaccine of inactivated of, of these viral vaccines to the dry cow and then come back and they actually use uh, the uh, the modified live uh, in the in the fresh cow say after 40 45 days so it's interesting because I, I think that some producers are probably going to say ah, this can't happen to me my measures are, are top notch I'm not going to get BVD and as you suggest as soon as we let our guard down that's kind of when when the problem can hit oh absolutely so for bringing animals into a dairy herd uh, from outside destinations, we, we may have been transporting them from a long distance. We bring them in. They're at a high stress level at that time anyway. So do we need to quarantine those animals? Well, the, you know, typically, um, and again, it, you know, I think we're seeing that, you know, the industry has changed a little bit in terms of how we're, you know, raising heifers and a lot of people. Uh, you know, people are using uh, sort of remote sites in terms of raising heifers, but again, typically they'll implement a you know a vaccination program, you know, on on that particular site where they're doing their their heifer raising, and then uh, uh, you know when they move them, 
uh, typically, um, they're not they're not you know doing it in terms of animals. They they don't know the status of. They know the, the both the PI status and the vaccination status. So in in that case, what I would do, I think it's still a good idea to quarantine because again, they're moving from one site to another. Um, uh, and you know, at the very least, you know, if we can keep that, uh, you know, at a week, the you know, in the ideal world, I mean, typically I'd want you know to be 30 days, but often that's just not going to work in terms of the, the flow of the of the facility. But, but if we can quarantine them, to me, that's that's still an advantage, even though we know the the BVD status and that, because again, we're bringing them from a completely different herd. So I think if we can do that, that's good. And uh, the longer, the better. But if we could at least, uh, and then in terms of if we're going to revaccinate them, so we're going to bring them into the herd and uh, we're going to, if they're not bred, um, I'm going to want to probably get a, uh, a week or two underneath them before I'm going to want to revaccinate. But but typically, I, I you know, as much as possible, I try to avoid, you know, vaccinating the animals right either at, when they're being transported or when they're coming off the, off the truck. So again, that they can um, to kind of be at their best uh, uh, in terms of being able to respond to. Because what we know is, is that whatever the vaccine is, if animals are dehydrated or if animals just haven't, you know, are, are running on empty in terms of not having any uh, fill lately in terms of any of, uh, and oftentimes on a long haul, it may be the case, that that the vaccine response is, I mean, because vaccines need energy and they need to move around, the, the cells need to move around. So I want to make sure I, I try to get those two things uh, kind of underneath the animal before I worry about vaccine. Are there any uh, outside vectors of the disease outside of a cow herd? Is, is there, are there wildlife? Uh, are, are there uh, other um, uh, sheep, uh, goats, anything like that that can carry the BVD? So, so it turns out with with BVD, and this is actually some work that we did um, back in the mid two thousands. And again, it was a uh, at, at a time when we had a, a issue in white-tailed deer called chronic wasting disease, which we still have in certain parts of the, of the United States. But in South Dakota, we were actually monitoring it pretty closely, and uh, we had a couple of deer that were submitted that year, uh, in uh, back in like two thousand five, uh, that were submitted for CWD testing, and it turned out that those deer. Uh, both had BVD, uh, and uh, and we've done work with that since, as as the group at Auburn, uh, and. And certainly, the, the interesting thing about white-tailed deer is they can, they can become PI, but it seems at least experimentally that when we uh, get the virus to replicate in uh, in deer, that those deer don't seem to live very long. Now, I can tell you that the ones that we got in the wild, one of them was a yearling, so that animal lived you know over a year uh, with that virus. And I think you know normally where we have a problem with white-tailed deer, I think in terms of with livestock, is you know predominantly in the winter and in, in those parts of the world where. Uh, you know, we're, we're animals, we, you know, we have feedstuffs that are congregated, particularly, you know, with snow. And then we'll have white-tailed deer, you know, coming into areas uh, where cattle are. So, Dr. Chase, uh, we know there's various strains of BVD. 1B seems to be the most um, consistently costly to producers. Can you kind of talk just a little bit about uh, the 1B strain? Yeah, so the, the thing about, you know, again, when we started classifying BBD, it was just type one and and type two, and in the, the vaccines that were that are that were out there, were predominantly looking at one, and one was particularly one A, and so, uh, and then two is is two A, and and you know and showed protection with that, and so again because this virus. Um, uses you know the immune system helps help it select itself to figure out uh what uh, kind of where the niche is what's happened is is that the 1b strain has emerged and, and that's because we've got some of the some of the vaccines that are on the market just don't have very good protection against 1b 
And so that's allowed 1B to really emerge now as, the, as by far the predominant type that we see. Uh, and and uh, when we look at PIs, uh, it's well over 50% of the time that, uh, that we see it. And, and typically when we look at, at uh, identifying um, or outbreaks as often as 1B, and then when we look at PIs, it's, sometimes it's been 100% of the time that we've seen 1B. So 1B has sort of taken advantage of openings that where vaccines just don't provide good enough protection against it. It's just enough different in some vaccines so the vaccine doesn't provide protection. So again, that's really why you want to make sure one is that when you have PIs and have a BVD problem that you understand what the subtype is and then secondly that you make sure you have a vaccine that really covers that subtype. And, and you know, some, some uh, companies will say that they do but it's really important to ask for the data that shows that indeed that have good protection against 1B. And, and unfortunately, when we're talking about good protection here, good protection is not 80%. It's not 90%. It means, because remember, all it takes is one. And so we want our protection to be well over 90% if we're going to protect that herd. And that's one of the things, again, that makes BVD so darn tough is that we've got to have that when there's that one animal that's susceptible, and in, in most diseases where it's, it's they get over it pretty quick, that's not a big deal. But here where we're producing a PI, so we're affecting generation after generation by having a PI, having that uh, you know a vaccine that only provides you know that, that it's 80, 85 percent effective is just not good enough when it comes to preventing PI. So really important that we understand exactly what the type is that's in that herd and then also understanding what the protection that vaccine provides. So testing can assure us of which particular strain it is, correct? Yeah, absolutely, because we, we can test it using um, DNA technology and tell you exactly what, what the type is and be able to really help the, the producer in terms of being able to uh, uh, give a vaccine that's going to be effective for that. Because sometimes, sometimes maybe it's going to be 2A. So you just need, you know, but by testing, you know what it is, and that really you know, takes care of or helps optimize your use of vaccines. So when we talk about vaccines, there are several on the market, correct? Um, and, and some work better in certain situations. So tell us a little bit about what we need to know as far as using a, a vaccine. One uh, thing that I think of in that, in that regard is the Singer strain. So uh, Singer strain is a, a type 1A uh, virus. It's a virus actually it's found in uh, several different vaccines. And, and what makes it a little bit different uh, than the other strain, other type one strains, is that um, it has a it has a mutation that's in a kind of a different part of the genome, uh, and so when you give this, so again, when you when you give a, a vaccine, you'd like to think that you're going to protect the areas where the you know the animal's first going to come in contact with it. So uh, the one of the interesting things about this Singer strain, and this is something we did uh, many years ago, uh, is that we look we actually vaccinated animals and then we followed to see where the virus, the vaccine virus, actually ended up in the animal. And, and the interesting thing is that even though Singer is what we call a cytopathic, and normally they the they they, they cause the immune system to get turned on a little bit quicker and they don't last as long as, as, as in terms of holding up the, what we call the antigenic mass, so, which means the ability of the virus to grow and then to grow and then grow in spaces so that it can turn on as much of the immune response as it can. And so the thing, interesting thing about Singer is that it grows in, in the, actually grows even though when you give it as an injection, it will actually grow uh, in the down in the in the lower gastrointestinal tract and in other what we call mucosal spaces. So again, this virus, remember, is predominantly transmitted through an oral route, and so 
here's a vaccine that actually grows in those areas so they actually get an immune response kind of uh, in the area where they're first going to see it and the, and the other thing uh, that's different about the singer strain is that again if we look at the the you know the normal virus that causes pi we mentioned this earlier was non-cytopathic uh, and non-cytopathics again grow in, in, in multiple tissues and they typically the the antigen of the virus lasts longer so does Singer, and so I think I think those are the things that give Singer some um, upswing. And we we uh, for example we did a, a study with it uh, uh, again in the early 2000s. So when other companies were adding the type two uh, in and could show that actually the Singer strain gave us uh, good protection against a type two. Uh, and then and then we've also done other work since then that shows that the Singer strain uh, also gives us good protection against one B. So the Singer strain, uh, to me, is, is a really an interesting strain from the standpoint that it's kind of in between. It's in between this non-cytopathic, which we know are, are the strains that cause PIs, and then the cytopathic, which is what are in most vaccines, uh, and, are the, and, and, it, and it, even though it is cytopathic, uh, it behaves kind of like a, a mixture of the two, and I think makes it give you just a little bit better uh, protection and certainly broader protection. And uh, and you know, and then there's other other strains uh, that are out there. The type two strains all seem to be kind of. Um, I think most of them do a pretty adequate job against the type two, but I think where we have the big hole right now uh, is with type one and particularly against one B. And so finding a, a vaccine that's been proven to be against one B, uh, like Singer has, I think uh, is important. What other vaccines are available to producers? Um, they might be stronger in, in one strain versus another. Well, I, I think you know the, the, probably the, the biggest thing is that you know, as I mentioned earlier, most of them are are in combination. Uh, I'd say the vast majority of them are have both a type one and a type two. So I think you know, the, and then and then there's the question of whether or not they're modified live or killed. Uh, you know, and we mentioned before, and I, you know, and I'll reiterate this: that when it comes, to, I mean, modified live, particularly in young stock, I think is it's essential because it, that's again it mimics the the replication of the virus and the, how the immune system is going to respond to it. But once we get that memory established and that animal's got a good immune response, then I think that's where we look at um, using some of these inactivated products. And some of it is, is with safety uh, in, in terms of using it in pregnant animals. I mean, we never have to worry about a, an activated vaccine having any problems in a uh, in a vaccinated animal, or, or excuse me, in a pregnant animal, uh, so that's that's one you know one certainly one of the places we can do. And the other thing about it is that the inactivated vaccines, particularly when we're talking about clostridial antibody, uh, because uh, they're typically they're a little bit more expensive. But the reason they're more expensive is because you got to put all the viral antigen in there. So the key for a, a modified live is that you that the virus gets into the animal, and the animal is part of the virus factory. But if you've got animals that are already well vaccinated, um, that ability to, to be a, to generate what we call antigenic mass or to, to replicate is going to be decreased. So I think you know, as we look at for, particularly for clostridial antibodies, and I think even I think we're beginning to see research in terms of looking at duration that that indeed that using inactivated vaccines uh, along with it's not not one or the other. It's, to me, it's again modified live, and then and then ha and again having that discussion with your veterinarian, you know, with the veterinarian with his producer. But it's key to me that you know that the veterinarians. Uh, have those kind of discussions and, and realize what the what the possibilities are in terms of using the two together. Because before we were always kind of under the impression that was either one or the other, 
And I think what's what's clear to us now is that in fact that together there that's it's 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 a really a an excellent approach to take in terms of of getting uh, the best protection. And again, remember one of the things that we're after is colostral antibody, uh, and I think there's clearly that given an inactivated vaccine is going to give you a, a much better response for that. And that's a great way to start that calf off. You know, we talked about how important it was from the uh, PI standpoint to do the ear notching, but boy, no one can underestimate the importance of having good quality colostrum to start off that animal. And I want to have good quality colostrum that contains a lot of BVD antibody to help that calf um, get, get off to a good start. That's our discussion for today. In our next podcast, we'll talk about killed and modified live vaccine choices. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Chris Chase, for helping us out here today. And thanks for listening to the Cattle First podcast. To get more information, contact Beringer Ingelheim or log on to cattlefirstpodcast.com.